This podcast was recorded at 8.15 a.m. April 12th, Jakarta time. Things may have changed by the time you hear this or see this. Enjoy the show. Welcome, welcome back to Reformasi Dispatch, episode one, season two. I'm Jeff Hutton, regional yeah, correspondent um, for the Straits Times of Singapore. Don't cut me off, Kevin. Uh, <laughs> it's been so I'm long. Trying. No, I you just to. wait to get in. Hey, this <laughs> is Kevin O'Rourke. From Reformasi Weekly. Reformasi. The, 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 uh, the end room, the brains of the entire operation, because God knows. I'm nothing without without his intel. Um, no, it takes a village. Today, the show today, we've got uh, G20. We've got subsidies. We've got former ambassador, U.S. ambassador to Indonesia, Robert Blake. Uh, and that was a really good one. We just wrapped that up, actually, about half an hour ago. I didn't embarrass myself too much. He came on and talked about uh, decommissioning uh, coal-fired power plants and um, said that there's a, there's a reason to be optimistic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he had just taken a trip to Jakarta. Uh, he is a uh, an assistant uh, for the team in the U.S. government under the, uh, the special envoy for climate, John Kerry. And so, Ambassador Blake had some incredible perspectives about uh, his meetings with um, uh, officials, and ministers uh, in Indonesia about uh, energy transition. He didn't. He didn't look me up. He uh, didn't. Didn't send a message. I mean, go out at all he just came and went so i'm not taking that personally it's fine um it's fine look i'm sure he's busy uh but the, <laughs> the takeaway i i had from our conversation was that you know you look at the progress that indonesia has made a really really big uh existential issue um deforestation the fires from 2015 and then he uh, the ambassador didn't say this specifically but you know that also runs parallel to Indonesia's more or less good handling of, of COVID-19. Um, not as bad as in other places, much better than we had feared that there is the organizational capacity. There is every reason to expect or uh, the, 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 the country to get behind and full embrace of renewable energy if there is a political will. And I'm not sure if they're not sure yet. Right. Yeah. And uh, but the good thing is that the talks are happening and uh, that's very constructive. Um, and yeah, it's one of those things, always the climate change. You look at the, uh, the the rate of progress relative to where things were a year or two years ago. And it's pretty breathtaking how far things have come along. Uh, but then on the other hand, if you look at just the sheer scale of the problem and scope, it's uh, daunting. But uh, what Widodo has said repeatedly is, where's the money? Uh, and then here, what we're hearing in this interview, um, spoiler alert, is uh, where's the reform? <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, yeah, we got the billions, we got the bucks, but um, we, we need we the bankable, need, to... need the bankable projects. Yeah. But before that, we got to We got to have sort of we got to need the reform. Right. Um, just uh, before we get any further, um, Stephen has, has alerted us that um, the, the RUPKS, 
the uh, sexual assault crimes bill is due to pass parliament today. It is Tuesday. Um, so we're going to know more about that once we've published on Wednesday morning, Jakarta time. Um, there's been a lot of, there's been a bit, little bit of a movable feast. Uh, um, the definition of rape has been up in the air. The, what's, what's illegal, what's not legal, consensual sex, non-consensual sex has been a bone of contention. Um, what are you going to be looking for when the final uh, law comes out? This is going to be one piece of the puzzle. And another important one, potentially in the near future, is a revision, finally, of the very antiquated criminal code, the Kauhape which is the one that actually already outlaws rape. So there may be headlines saying that this uh, new bill, the UUTPKS, fails to definitively prohibit rape. Part of the reason for that, though, is that that is one of the few things that's actually already in the Kauhape. So the distinction between consensual and non-consensual sex is really important because if there's no distinction there, then potentially it's possible to get in trouble uh, one way or the other, um, reputationally or legally or uh, so on, for engaging in intercourse that's non-consensual as the victim. Um, So that's why that distinction is important. And at one stage it was taken out, so there was no distinction in the draft, and that was to placate some of the uh, religiously conservative parties remains to be seen if it's uh, put back in again or not. But in any event, um, this, even with some flaws and shortcomings and so on and some missed opportunities, this should be a really huge step forward in a critical area that's really been uh, missing this type of legislation that really focuses on uh, the rights of victims. Um, you know, that, that's the, the main aim of this uh, piece of legislation. Uh, also, the bill addresses the premise, and that's that women in this country cannot study cannot work without fear of sexual harassment. They get blamed. They're told to uh, forget it ever happened and um, just stay quiet. And mm-hmm. now that Indonesia is having that discussion and uh, it's, it's a potentially a great day. Yeah. Yeah. President Joko Widodo has put to rest mostly talk of postponing the 2024 election. He uh, had it out, a recent cabinet meeting, telling uh, the great all and sundry to knock it off, basically. Um, He he stopped short of doing a full LBJ. I think it was LBJ who said, uh, I will not serve. (laughs) Why? Why Say it. Yeah, that's kind of funny. Yeah, nor- normally, you don't want to see somebody go full LBJ, but uh, yeah, in this case, it would have been uh, good. And so, yeah, he, he stopped short again and uh, you know, truncated his stance, as it were. Uh, but at least he went further than the last couple of times uh, when he merely said that it's critical to abide by the Constitution. So that, that's what he said in the past a couple of times. And that was important because at least it really downplayed the prospects for uh, and some extra constitutional power grab. But it left open the window of amending the constitution such that he could abide by the amended constitution and postpone elections that way if enough parties supported him. So, uh, you know, as we know, uh, ministers, several of them are pushing very hard for an amendment to postpone elections. And finally, um, at a very late stage, uh, the president 
came out on 6 April and said definitively the cabinet meeting, stop talking about it. And this was following uh, a, a, an event that appeared staged by Coordinating Minister Luhut Panjayatan, who's an advisor to an organization that ostensibly represents community heads or Kapala Desa. There's 70,000 Kapala Desa in the country. And the president attended this rally. And then afterwards, the head of the group, DPP Abdesi is the name of the group, came out and called for a third term for Widodo. And so it made it look as if this was all designed to create the appearance that grassroots support exists for extending Widodo's tenure, when in fact, good, credible, accurate poll data shows quite the opposite. So um, there was that was very unsettling, and it took a, an extra week uh, yeah, until this uh, 6 April uh, cabinet meeting before the uh, president came out and signaled that ministers need to drop the issue and stop talking about it. And that's important because if they can't talk about it, then these this, this small group of ministers is no longer going to be able to uh, campaign openly and try to sway public opinion and create the impression that there's popular support, which which is what the parties want to see before they embark on amendment. There's a school of thought there, Kevin, that, um, hey, if it's what people want, then what's the problem? If if there is an amendment to the Constitution and, and Joe Cooley runs again and he gets enough votes to become president again, who are we to judge? What's the problem? Um, well, uh it would just set the precedent of amending the constitution to serve the interest of whoever's in power. Uh, ideally an amendment like that should take effect 10 years down the road rather than uh, benefiting the uh, office holder who has enormous powers of patronage uh, at their disposal. Uh, plus the, yeah, uh, tinkering with the constitution uh, in that way would, would likely just pave the way for a lifelong dictatorship. Um, in reality. Right. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree with you, but I've been having this discussion um, in, in way our chat groups and emails and I've been seeing discussion. Of, is, is it a problem? Is it not a problem? And it's, yeah, yeah, actually it is. You, um, you tinker with the constitution as, as it suits you. And maybe Joko Widodo does have the, the goodwill of the people and he could probably get a third term if he ran i don't know but what about the next guy a woman who's not who uh doesn't have the interests of the country i i, I mean it's it's only been 20 years since yeah uh, democracy was uh embedded so a too soon to be doing that yeah yeah term limits are important they're a useful tool uh, especially in a setting where the state owns so much of the economy. Uh, state-owned enterprises are gigantic here. So uh, whoever's in the presidency ultimately can command uh, those companies, which in some cases constitute entire economic sectors in and of themselves. And so there's just a gigantic incentive to stay in power once one is in power. And uh, that's the utility of term limits in, in that kind of a context. Isn't it great that the majority of Indonesia, the vast majority of Indonesian people don't want any part of this. That, that just, I, I, that just makes yeah. me love being a reporter here. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The public is aware of these things. Yeah. They're, they're, they're 
plugged in and clued in and um, uh, cognizant and interested. So, yeah, the polls show that uh, by a margin of, uh, was it uh, well over two to one, almost three to one, people oppose the idea of amending the Constitution to extend Widodo's tenure. And, and Widodo is very popular right now. That's true. He's got approval rating of, it's come down a bit, but it's uh, still in about the mid-60s, which is enviable for any world leader. However, the thing is that that rating would collapse uh, if he were to push for an amendment to stay in power. He's popular primarily because people see him as a symbol of democracy and uh, three quarters of Indonesians still support uh, democracy. Well, and it's uh, um, that's a sentence you haven't been hearing much of. Yeah. uh, Two thirds of, of a country supporting democracy. Wow. Um, do you want to riff a little bit on some of the polls that, that, that have been coming out since uh, we took hiatus? Um, looking like the, the three front runners still comfortably the three front runners. Yeah, there's uh, a lot of um, stasis or stability in the polls uh, since the last good one, which was a while ago, which was uh, conducted in uh, December. Uh, so just before the Omicron wave. And then with the Omicron wave, there was no in-person polling. And so this is the, the first good one that came out uh, last week. And uh, it was from Indicator Politik. And it was conducted in mid-February uh, in person nationwide. And it showed that uh, the rankings are still the same. So Prabowo and Ganjar Pranowo, the central Java governor, uh, in a virtual tie for first with um, the defense minister Prabowo slightly ahead. But within the error of margin of the poll of three percent, and then Anis Paswedan uh, not too far behind in third place, and that's pretty much the same as it was before. Uh, Prabowo may have softened a little bit. Um, Ganjar has remained stable. What's interesting about it is that uh, the name recognition for Ganjar is still at sixty-five percent, and that constitutes upside potential for him because the name recognition nationwide for Prabowo is ninety-eight percent. So basically, Ganjar is already on par with Prabowo, even though. He only has two thirds of the country from which to draw support because you know, one third of Indonesians don't even know who Ganjar is. And as they find out between now and uh, election time, uh, at least some of them are going to support him, uh, probably quite a lot. And actually, the poll shows that among people who know of Ganjar, he is overwhelmingly the favorite and Prabowo is, is weaker and Baswedan is about the same. So that suggests that as Ganja becomes more well-known, at least some people are going to gravitate to him and shift away from Prabowo, and that should be enough to vault him ahead of Prabowo. Other things being equal, there's a lot else that can change between now and then, of course. Looks so, like, uh, um, pretty positive results for Ganja, basically. It looks like uh, the, the, the PDIP uh, Megawati uh, tug of war. Um, and uh, there, there, there was a rock quarry... Um, uh, issue that was that was blowing up in his face that, that hasn't had on um, the political impact. Mm, well, you know, um, hard to say. Yeah, this uh, polling took place uh, just after that story broke, and it's a lingering problem for Ganjar because uh, lots of times when he makes a public appearance somewhere in Central Java or Jogja, there'll be a gathering of students demonstrating about the Wadas quarry and protesting the plans to um, level a large part of this bucolic community uh, in central Java to 
to mine rock for a dam nearby. This is a central government project. So it's going to be a lingering problem for Ganjar. And unfortunately, uh, it seems like there's not a whole lot he can do about it. Um, and it, uh, it may have halted some of his upward momentum in the polls, potentially, I think. Well, it's so good that he's got the support of his party, though. Yeah, right. Yeah, one of the senior PDIP parliamentarians actually recommended that the people of WADA should file criminal charges against the governor. <laughs> this is his party colleague. So, yeah, there's some really deep rifts there in the party. So Ganjar is not going to get his nomination for president from PDIP. It's got to come from somebody else. It's just, uh, no, there's no chance. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I don't so. Think no, I mean, yeah, no, no, one, no one has said that. They haven't ruled it out uh, clearly. But, um, you know, the, the alliance that's uh, brewing between PDIP and Prabowo's Gurindra continues to strengthen. So it looks like a Prabowo Puan Maharani ticket. So therefore, Ganjar is going to have to uh, get enlisted by an alliance of three other parties. And that could be Nasdem, Democrat, uh, but they still need one other. And Golkar and PKB are two big uh, candidates for that Um but they've been preoccupied with fighting for extending Widodo's term. So uh, very unclear if they're going to be willing now to uh, swing over to backing Ganjar instead. Hey, podcast listeners, Jeff here again. For more analysis like this on Indonesian politics, policy, and economics, try a subscription of the Reformasi Weekly Newsletter. Go to reformasi.info for your free one-month trial. I want to get to G20 in a second. Uh, first of all, I wanted to talk about subsidies. And I, I thought that we had put this all to rest back in 2014, 2015, when... Um, there was some relaxation, some market movement of, of the um, of the petrol prices, benzene. But now, uh, well, we, we talked with uh, Finance Minister Sri Mulyani, um, and she said that there's there's ample windfall from the commodities export to make it easier to target um, subsidies to the poor, and the vulnerable. And that makes intuitive sense. You did some calculation, though, in the most recent um, newsletter that said it's not just, but if, if, if it is targeted, it is a really big bomb because we're looking at spending of something like 3.7% of GDP on subsidies. Um, that's great for inflation, but the opportunity cost is that's money that could be put towards infrastructure and services. Are we going back? And it's very hard to take away once you've given it. Are we going back to an addiction to subsidies? And can you give us a sense of just how much money the government plans to be pumping into the economy? Right. Yeah, it's uh, it's a pretty sizable uh, problem. Um, this is because of the high price of oil right now. So what I did was some calculations using current price levels, uh, extrapolating them through the remainder of this year, which is yeah, a, just a you know, basic way of looking at it because prices may change between now and then, um, depending especially on what happens in Ukraine. Uh, but as things stand now, Indonesia is on track to 
spend a, a, an awful lot on um, energy subsidies, uh, probably close to 500 trillion rupiah. And that is the equivalent of a lot of solar panels, uh, by the way. However, you know, the, compared to about 10 years ago when subsidies were really bad, the GDP has grown a lot. So as a share of GDP, it's still not as bad as it was in 2011 when uh, subsidies were almost three and a half percent of GDP in 2011, 2012. Um, now, energy subsidies at present, uh, if, if conditions last to the end of the year, would end up at around 2.7 percent of GDP, probably. That, that includes some various assumptions on my part. Note, however, that there's additional subsidies beyond energy subsidies, a lot of food subsidies, fertilizer subsidies. Uh, so those uh, bring the whole thing up to 3.7 percent. But if we're talking about just energy alone, then uh, right now, it's getting close to 3% just for energy. And the government can afford that because of this windfall from revenues from the high prices of commodities that it uh, exports or taxes like palm oil and especially coal, and minerals. Uh, however, it's just basically a wasted opportunity to do something better with uh, that windfall, whether it's energy transition or social protection. Um, the president wants to move the capital, of course. The defense minister wants to buy a weapon system. So there's a lot of competing priorities uh, for this windfall. And instead, right now, it's being spent on subsidies for fuel, uh, not just uh, diesel, known as solar, confusingly, uh, um, but also petrol, especially the, the product known as pertolite. Uh, so the government confirmed that it's going to be compensating pertamina for its uh, sales of pertolite, which right now are taking place at about a 30% discount to the uh, actual true market value of the fuel. Pertolite is the, is the knockdown basic uh, petrol you get at a, at a pertamina station, right? It's, it's the cheapest price regulated one. There's pertamax and pertolite. In most petrol stations, that, that is now true, yes. Uh, in Throughout history, until this year, uh, it has been premium, you know, is the worst fuel you can buy. <laughs> and uh, some parts of Indonesia, you can still find premium, but uh, increasingly now it's uh, pertolite. We don't have the latest figures for the breakdown of what exactly pertamina has been selling in terms of uh, premium versus pertolite. Um, but basically, pertamina, uh, Pertamina is taking premium and mixing it 50-50 with Pertamax to produce Pertolite. <laughs> um, and of course, the really pernicious thing is that these are subsidies, these are taxpayers' dollars. The um, this government money is going to disproportionately benefit you and me. Uh, we, we drive cars. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, we're the ones who benefit, not, not the poor. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't. I don't run my car on uh, premium or even Pertolite for that matter. Uh, I, I baby the engine, but um, yeah, yeah, it's a well, terrible subsidy for. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, no, it's a, it's a, it, it hurts uh, equity to uh, subsidize fuel because the major beneficiaries are car owners or motorcycle owners, even. Right, right. So it's money that could be better spent and difficult to take away when you want to. I mean, people get used to free money. They don't, they see it as a birthright. And then when you, it comes time to claw it back, you can get riots. Well, yes and no. I mean, uh, actually, there are some techniques that have been proven to be effective um, 
in the past for overcoming that problem. Plus, you've got a president with approval rating in the mid-60s with virtually no political opposition. We know he's got carte blanche right now at the end of his presidency, the final two and a half years, to do whatever the heck he wants, practically, uh, short of amend the Constitution, apparently. But uh, so, yeah, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a wasted opportunity uh, to be spending this money on this priority. However, I would say that I think that government will continue this only through Edel Fitri, which is coming up in less than a month. So, uh, in fact, Luhut Benjaitan, the coordinating minister, has said that the government is going to raise energy prices in stages over the course of the remainder of the year. Uh, so that means there's going to be inflation that's going to hit uh, consumer spending, household incomes, uh, especially in the middle and upper class. Um, you know, but um, it's it's a good sign. The the funny thing is that the president commissioner of Pertamina, uh, Basuki Pranama, Ahok, former Jakarta governor, differed with Luhut and uh, denied that there's a plan to raise fuel prices later this year. So remains to be seen. It's uh, great. Moment of Zen there for a minute. Uh, <laughs> now let's talk about G20. Um, Ashwin Moriani told us that uh, it is uh, very difficult to get people to agree on, on an agenda, um, that it's, uh, it is a thorny time geopolitically, putting it mildly. Um, we've heard from certainly the Australian Prime Minister. I didn't realize that um, Justin Trudeau in Canada has been quite so explicit, but he seems to be leaning towards not going as well. As G7 members start peeling away from the G20, you get this situation where um, you know you get the, these multilateral institutions are are starting to split down the center. Um, what what is your view of the likelihood of a G20 summit at this point? Now we've seen the atrocities or evidence of alleged atrocities in Bucha um, and a complete lack of of pushback from allies like China. What's what's it looking like? Is it going to happen? Do you think? No, I don't think so. Not at this rate. No, nope. I think uh, a full uh, G20 um, with all 19 members, excluding Russia, is not likely because one side or the other is going to back down because China is fully back in Russia right now. Um, the uh, Chinese foreign minister talked with Indonesia's foreign minister, Retno Morasudi, last week and made a very clear message in the readout from the foreign ministry that uh, China wants the G20 to avoid political topics and stick to economics. Of course, as when we talked to the finance minister, she made clear that the two are intertwined because the war is being fought with economics, with sanctions. So it's impossible to talk about the world economy without talking about the war. Uh, and then, of course, there's uh, India and South Africa and Brazil, which are not particularly constructive right now because they're uh, they're keen to maintain various types of relations with Russia. So uh, squaring that circle is not possible. Uh, the G20 is either going to be um, an enhanced G7, excluding Russia and China and uh, a few others, uh, or it's going to be just those countries and excluding uh, most of the G7 countries. Uh, so it's a it's a real pity uh, because the, the agenda for the G20 is crucial, especially climate change, but also uh, you know, pandemic response and preparedness and um, financial inclusion. There's a lot of constructive things that the process entails, and uh, it's all very much in jeopardy right now. And this is this is very much uh, 
in, in the near future here, it's imminent because there's a whole series of preliminary meetings for the uh, summit itself in late October. And those meetings will be uh, unfolding. They already have been happening at, at lower levels, and uh, it's been awkward. Uh, so it's going to be only more so, and some of them are probably going to uh, fail to occur. You know, the Treasury Secretary of the U.S., Janet Yellen, has called for the U.S. to, to boycott if Putin you know, takes part in the G20. And probably a call like that is going to come forth soon from Anthony Blinken, too. So Indonesia is facing huge pressure right now, but they seem unwilling to defy either um, the U.S. or China. And so they're going to end up irking both probably in the end. Yeah. What is what is the smart, self-interested thing for Indonesia to do here? <laughs> uh, yeah, to connect the dots and to uh, disinvite Russia and to uh, withstand the bluster from China, which in the end is only ever going to be bluster. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I see their position. China is a huge source of funding and they, there is this long tradition of not choosing sides right between the yeah the which is way which is a false tradition to begin with because suharto definitely chose sides in a major way for 32 years and yeah, yeah. proclaimed uh, non-alignment while being extremely aligned with the united states so uh first of all it's a false tradition second of all it's a it's a luxury indonesia can no longer afford uh, nor is it one that Indonesia should even aspire to, given its status. Now, Indonesia has grown, it has developed, and it's a thriving democracy, and it has stature. The world is looking desperately to Indonesia to show some leadership, uh, and instead it's reverting to its um, uh, notions of uh, neutrality and, and that kind of a hallowed tradition. And it's uh, neither feasible nor in Indonesia's self-interest. It does require thinking ahead in a way of if this happens in this. And yeah. so if, if we um, let Russia and China come and we don't speak up about Ukraine, um, then that does set a precedent for China feeling willing to do whatever the heck it wants. Taiwan. Taiwan. Oh, that's South China Sea. South, South China Sea. We're in the South China Sea and we're already having trouble with China. So if we don't push back and train, which is very, very far away, and we don't have a whole lot of trade with them, um, then we might get problems here at home. I'm not seeing any dot connecting there at all. In fact, I'm getting lots of, I'm getting, I'm getting lots of, oh, very, very far away. Our trade isn't what it is. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, quite Hey, there's all this cheap Russian oil out in the market, so let's go get it. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. Hey, on the contrary, Pertmina is buying substantial quantities of Russian crude oil and converting its Indramayu refinery in order to accommodate the characteristics of Russian crude. Yeah. And so if if you were a smart ass reporter putting that to uh, Luhut or to Retina saying, I mean, this is just going to come back to bite you in the ass. They're going to come back and say, we have to do what's in the best interest of, of Indonesians. Right now, there's a bunch of cheap crude out there. Don't tell me about your neocolonial crap. We, I, I want to take care of my own people. And it's, um, there, there's no rhetoric out there saying, well, taking care of my own people means thinking ahead and sort of thinking about um, we don't have to be in bed with, with the Americans to protect democracy. <laughs> it's, 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's plenty of other democratic countries in the world uh, uh, to to emulate as well, um, including Taiwan, <laughs> or Japan, or South Korea. Uh, yeah, close to home, the other Philippines is a democracy. So, it, and it, they voted to get Russia off the UN, the the, uh, the UN Human Rights Commission, along with the Burmese junta. And if yeah. the Burmese junta doesn't want you on the Human Rights Commission, how far from the pack have you strayed? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that goes into the aberration character category, I think. And, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah. yeah, but the other thing is that Indonesia really needs to appreciate its uh, gravitas uh, in the international arena right now, which is increasingly uh, tied to economic resources, especially in the case of China, which is highly dependent on imports of various resources, uh, including Indonesian coal, uh, among other things. So uh, the idea that uh, Indonesia needs to subordinate itself to the interest of China and basically uh, show obeisance to China's guidance is wrong because uh, China needs to uh, pay attention to Indonesia and respect Indonesia as a economic trading partner that it, it can't afford to jeopardize its relations with Indonesia. Right. right. Yeah, it's got leverage. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. Well, it's enough ranting between you and I. If only <laughs> don't get invited to the palace that often, maybe because of this. <laughs> but I was surprised yeah. to hear that uh, you had just learned about Trudeau's uh, stance in Canada. I, th I thought you were the one advising him. So. Oh, look, um, he blocked me. Uh, really? I've been, uh, I accidentally sent some photos I shouldn't have sent. Justin's lost. Oh, we'll that another day. <laughs> Great talking with you again. Uh, that was season one. Uh, sorry, that was episode one, season two. Smooth as always. One take. Yeah. Ambassador Blake, welcome back to Reformacy Dispatch. It's great to have you. Great to be back. Thanks for thanks for inviting me. Um, I, sorry, we'll, we'll we'll get into climate change in just a minute. Another existential threat. Um, but I want to address the the elephant in the room, and I want to pose an awkward hypothetical to you. Imagine you're back in the embassy in Jakarta, um, what I'm sure you call the good old days, uh, and you've got Tony Blinken on the phone. And uh, he's asking you, what, what do we do with the president come, um, come October? Do we, or I think it's actually September, do we send him G20 or not? Because people are really divided. What, what, what would your advice be? Well, my advice to him would probably be to uh, allow me to talk to the Indonesians to see how set they are on inviting Putin. Because I think that there's going to be growing pressure um, on. Biden and indeed on other cabinet members to uh, boycott any meetings, G20 meetings and other meetings that the Russians are sending their counterparts to. So, I, you know, I think um, 
the president is going to be increasingly boxed in by domestic politics and by, you know, the EU and other allies and by the continuing Russian atrocities that just make it very, very difficult to, to make any kind of concessions. So if I were them, I would be trying to explore uh, with the Indonesians whether there are options available uh, other than inviting Putin to the summit and other than inviting ministers. So I, I don't know what those would be. You'd have to, I'd have to talk to see what the parameters and the contours of, of an agreement might be. But for example, you know, could we invite Russia to come to a, to attend at a lower level so that maybe a minister represents Putin instead of Putin himself? Uh, maybe there's a possibility that they could attend by Zoom or something like that. Any Something that would in some way diminish Russia's uh, level, but would still allow them to participate in some manner so that the Indonesians could be responsive to Chinese pressures. But, and I that's, 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 that's the other skew, right? That needs to drop. So how are the Chinese? Right. So the Chinese are, of course, pushing for them to allow full participation by Putin at, you know, head of state level. But um, as you know, there several heads of state, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, Prime Minister Morrison, have already said that they're not going to attend if uh, if if uh, Putin is there. And I I imagine if the, these Russian atrocities keep up, that that there's going to be a, a greater groundswell among the, at least the G7 and possibly others as well, not to attend. So again, I think the the, the more interesting question is for Indonesian diplomacy is whether they can explore with the Russians um, some lower level participation by the Russians, because otherwise they're going to have a terrible problem on their hands. And you may have seen Janet Yellen testified earlier this week uh, to yeah. a congressional committee. And she said, look, I, I'm, I'm not going to attend any meetings where my Russian counterparts are. And she, she implied that at least that Biden was going to make the same decision, although the White House has been a little bit more careful about what they're saying. Well, right. And it's April. I mean, why would they? They're April trying to so. allow themselves a little bit of uh, leeway. That was my question is uh, when I buy a plane ticket, I usually do it about one or two weeks ahead of time. With the president of the United States, when does this all have to crystallize, do you think? That's a good question. Yeah, generally a, a few weeks at least, and if not more. For you know these big summits, they know uh, well ahead of time what the dates are. So um, I'm sure it's tentatively on the president's calendar. But the only question again is is what the uh, what the details are. And so, but I'm sure they'll try to sort this out well before that. And uh, uh, you know it's going to come up for decision in terms of some of these ministerials because there's going to be a. G20 ministerial in the summer, and they're going to be, of course, finance minister meetings and others. So, so I think those are going to help kind of set the, the table for whatever the head of state decision is. Right. Yeah, the, uh, the low level meetings so far have been happening with uh, the other participants turning their video cameras off during these uh, virtual meetings together with Russian counterparts uh, right. so far. Right. But, you know, I think the other kind of point to, to stress to your to your listeners and to your readers is that, you know, this is a real shame. And, you know, I, I, I'm certainly, I'm not blaming the, the, the United States for, for isolating the Russians. It's absolutely the right thing to do, but 
the the Russian actions in Ukraine uh, are are going to just further weaken the international system and all of these various multilateral institutions that exist to mobilize global action on important things like climate change. And, you know, if we're already facing a problem in the UN Security Council where the United States and China and Russia are vetoing each other's resolutions, so it's difficult to get real action to protect peace and security in, in the Security Council. Um, and again, you're going to start to see uh, some of these big global institutions like the G20, APEC, um, begin to break down. And, and those that has a real impact. You know, these are these are useful mechanisms to mobilize global action on global trade and on climate change and on covid and, you know, a whole range of other things. And uh, and that's I think it's going to hurt hurt our overall efforts. And it's and it's a shame. And, and I think people people get very focused on, you know, the personalities and all that. But I think the other thing for people to remember is the, the real practical impact on some of these important priorities that we have. Yeah. Kevin, you want to tick that off ramp and say yeah. climate change? Sure. Yeah. yeah well, um, yeah. On, on that note, what type of progress are you seeing uh, with regard to climate action in Indonesia? from a bilateral standpoint with the U.S. thus far? I think you did a trip to uh, Jakarta just last month. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe first of all, it might be useful just to explain a little bit, you know, why Indonesia? I mean, why did we choose Indonesia and, and why did we choose to prioritize them? And, you know, we went through a process where we looked at, first of all, the countries with the largest greenhouse gas emissions in the world. And then secondly, countries that we judged would be willing to work with us which rules out large emitters like Russia, for example. China. And, and potentially China as well these days. That's right. But then third, also, you know, countries that are really willing to increase their climate ambition, you know, who are increase their their nationally determined contributions, you know, their emissions pledges and, and you know, really make a significant difference. And so we judged that uh, Indonesia was one of a small group of countries that met all of those criteria. And of course, it's a strategically important partner for the United States. We have a strategic partnership with, with Indonesia that we established during my time there. And of course, they're the largest Muslim majority democracy in the world, the largest and most important country in ASEAN, et cetera. So, so we decided that, you know, uh, where should we focus in Indonesia? Probably on coal, because that's where uh, their their greenhouse gas emissions are largest and where they're likely to continue. Oil, right now, their consumption of oil and gas is about the same, but oil is going gonna, is gonna to continue to decline, whereas coal is going to continue to be an important source. So if we can help Indonesia to move the needle on coal and accelerate uh, decommissioning of coal, you know, that could make a real difference to helping Indonesia to increase the ambition of its uh, nationally determined contribution, but also to help the global efforts to, to stop, you know, fossil fuels. So, um, so that's what we went in with. And so uh, this, this trip that I led with um, my treasury counterpart, uh, John Morton, um, you know, we went in and and we basically said, look, we'd we'd like to be able to uh, establish an initiative to accelerate coal decommissioning 
And at the end of that, we hope that Indonesia will be in a position to be able to announce, one, a more ambitious nationally determined contribution. Uh, and secondly, and most importantly, a commitment to an earlier end date for the pipeline of new coal-fired power plants. And then third, of course, a commitment to accelerate renewable energy growth to backfill behind the coal that's going to be decelerated. Um, so, you know, I think Indonesia agreed in principle to that. You know, they've always said that they're prepared to be more ambitious if they can get international financing. And I think hopefully they were not um, talking about hundreds of billions of dollars as sometimes they do in public statements. They were more uh, you know, I think rational about how much is really possible. And they were looking at the uh, deal that was signed by the United States and others with South Africa in the last uh, conference of parties in Glasgow. And so they were hoping to get some, you know, a comparable kind of deal, a multi-billion dollar deal to help Indonesia. And that's certainly what, what we envision as well. So uh, the next steps, again, are for us, for our experts on both sides, to get together and to try to define what the contours of such a, a deal might look like uh, in terms of the number of, of coal-fired power plants and then uh, the financing that we could bring to the table to, to, uh, to, to help with accelerate this decommissioning. And, uh, and again, we were very clear that uh, a really important part of this has got to be Indonesia's commitment to accelerate renewable energy growth. And, you know, quite frankly, they're a little bit behind schedule, even on their own rather slow timetable for renewable energy. Um, as you know, they, they hope to have uh, renewables constitute roughly 23% of their uh, energy by, by 2025, and they're not really even there yet. I mean, they're, they're not on track to meet that right now. And so we said, you know, you're gonna. It's gonna be very important for for Indonesia to be prepared to undertake the reforms that will be necessary to um, to allow renewable energy development to really flourish in Indonesia, and that includes things like increasing the tariffs for things like solar and, and wind and, and geothermal, uh, but also to streamline the the PLN process for power purchase agreements. It's a very, very slow process that has kind of a deterrent effect for investors. So uh, they need to speed that up. And so, you know, so we were talking in some detail about some of these issues. And and again, I think the Indonesians understand those issues and are, are willing to, you know, take a hard look at that. But um, this has all got to be part of, of the package uh, because, again, we want to we, we want to not only see th this progress on coal, but there's got to be energy behind it to, to backfill and preferably it's got to be renewable energy and not more fossil fuels. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so many questions here. Uh, <laughs> one thing that comes to mind is uh, uh, other countries are going to be seizing this opportunity to move into renewables, especially uh, Australia, which I think is supplying solar power to Singapore, for example. Right. Um, do you envision an opportunity for interests to align here where some of the incumbents in the energy sector see a self-interest in rushing into renewables and, and moving away from coal? Absolutely. I mean, this is this is going to be a multilateral initiative. In other words, we, we've always been clear that this this is going to be 
um, an effort that would be led by the United States and probably the Japanese. Um, and, you know, we'll pull together um, a multi-donor coalition that would not only include countries like other G7 partners, as well as countries that are have a kind of strategic interest in Indonesia, like the UAE, the United Arab Emirates. But then secondly, um, philanthropical capital, you know, Jeff Bezos and Mike Bloomberg and uh, the other large philanthropies in the United States have a great interest in playing a significant role uh, in these and other initiatives. And then, of course, private capital from Wall Street, banks and other investors. Um, John Kerry has been very, very active uh, talking to all of these stakeholders, not only about Indonesia, but but, uh, but about a range of other countries. And there's so there's you know, there's plenty of money to go around. Uh, the, the, the real thing that everybody's chasing are sort of bankable projects that, that they can, you know, get behind. So, so I think they, they welcome this, um, this effort. And of course, it's a very open tent. You know, we'd, we'd love to see, as you say, countries like Australia and others, um, uh, proceed with all of, all of their investments in, in these areas. And, uh, that can only be additive and a positive, um, uh, contribution. I wanted to ask you, though, I mean, the bankable projects, they really rely on sort of the political will on the top. And I think Kevin and I, Kevin would, would agree that um, there doesn't seem, it doesn't seem to be that sort of commitment. I think, Kevin, didn't you say that six cabinet members and agency heads have coal projects? And, you know, you, you we were talking about the tariffs of solar and wind. Yeah. Then reversed the tariffs. They, 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 they canceled an idea where they would they would pay to feed in electricity. Yeah, I mean, again, we we were pretty clear up front that part of this agreement has got to be a commitment to deal with these with these structural impediments that now exist. And um, and again, I think we we got a commitment from the Indonesians to do that. And so we'll we'll certainly um, we'll, we'll certainly continue to push on that because it's in their own interest to do these things. These are all things that are they're not going to benefit the United States. These are things that are going to benefit Indonesia and help to bring down costs for for not only for their consumers, but for businesses and so forth. So so this is uh, uh, going to be an economic boon for them as well. Yeah. Yeah. Banks are not financing new coal fired power plants. So that's really well, not just banks, uh, other countries, too. You know, yeah. other yeah. other countries are getting out of the coal financing business. So. Yeah. Um, so now's the time for them to, again, remove some of these uh, impediments that have existed. Yeah, I wonder, too, if these uh, conglomerates are going to be happy to get out from under their deals with PLN so that they can export their coal to uh, buyers who pay more. But be that as it may, uh, uh, <laughs> maybe... Uh, uh, maybe Such you can... <laughs> yeah. maybe you can well, again, you know, uh, every country in the world is going to be under pressure to... Yeah. Uh, wow. diversify out of fossil fuels. And, yeah. you know, there's just uh, the, 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 the financiers are, are going to be more and more reluctant to finance those kinds of projects because of reputational risk and because of their shareholders are just going to rebel if they do that. Um, so, you know, I think coal is, is, is on its way out. It's, it's going to take a while because a lot of them are in long-term projects, but you know, it, it's, it, it's an, there's, there's a rush for the exits. That's yeah. taking can, place. So can you tell us a bit about the nuts and bolts of um, these long-term projects and how to decommission a power plant? And I, I really can't. I mean, you no, know, I'm I'm kind of operating at the 
at the kind of senior level. And then we have a lot of much smarter people than me who are going to work out the details of this. We have, you know, uh, particularly folks in, in the U.S. Agency for International Development who have worked for years and years and years with um, with their counterparts in the PLN and, and, and in the energy ministry. And so they are the ones who are going to do the, the hard spade work that can then be teed up to the political level. So I don't want to pretend that I'm some great uh, expert on, on all these issues. Yeah. Um, but suffice to say, there's going to be a need for money from somewhere for somebody. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. But again, you know, Kerry is very fond of saying that reminding people that, that money is really not the problem. There's, there's, there's quite a lot of money going around from, from all the different sources that I talked about. It's, it's mustering that political will that you talked about uh, on the part of these countries to, um, to step up and, and, and tee up these kinds of big deals. And again, we think this is in their long-term interests and it's something that's going to, um, you know, redound to their benefit. How about uh, the um, climate change mitigation? Is, is that part of your remit? Well, we, we do have, uh, that's not part of my remit, but we do have extensive programs uh, through USAID and others on helping countries with adaptation. Uh, and uh, that's in a very important piece of it. Um, another, another important piece that I should mention is what we call the, the just transition. And that means that you know, they're inevitably in, in a place like Indonesia, as they begin to phase out coal, um, that's going to have quite a, a significant impact on some some parts of, of Indonesia where, you know, for example, coal mining is is really the the lead um, uh, sector and the lead employer. So in many parts of Kalimantan, for example, um, there's going to be need to be an effort over, you know, the, the next the, over the medium term to as as uh, the, the country phases out of coal to figure out ways to provide a new training and new employment for the miners and, and the coal, uh, the people who are being employed at these coal plants. And that, that's a very significant effort. You know, we, we began consultations on that with civil society organizations, but also with the government. And uh, so that's gonna be another part of this. And, you know, these are not easy, easy questions. You know, in many cases, the miners are uh, in many cases, illiterate and you know not terribly well educated. So you're you're not going to suddenly have them become members of the digital economy and join Tokopedia. You know they're going to have to probably be retrained to be farmers or fishermen or or some comparable thing there in Kalimantan. In some cases, uh, there'll be construction work. Uh, as you know, there's a big effort underway to to set up a new. Um, a special economic zone in Eastern Kalimantan. So con construction work could, could be a potential opportunity. But th those are the kinds of things that are going to have to be thought through um, in, in, in considerable detail. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, so we're going to get into that more. Our, our interview guest next week is Joe Manchin. So he can tell us about the. No, no, just kidding. <laughs> um, but can I ask a question to both Please. of you? Um, it, and it's it's about the degree to which it's it's in the Indonesian uh, consciousness, climate change, as opposed to something that's 
uh, there was such a struggle in, in rich countries to make it something uh, that was, you know, the next generation's problem. It was tomorrow's problem. It was very conceptual and it, drought, fires in Australia, um, uh, heat waves in places like British Columbia, crazy. Um, that's really, that's really crystallized in the minds of a lot of Western democracies. What's your sense of, of, of the buy-in among the regular Indonesian voters to the point that um, they're not going to be scared off by electric um, um, uh, energy security notions uh, that coal is fine, uh, we need to embrace renewables. Well, where, where are we in that, in that journey? Well, I think there's, there's still a lot more work that needs to be done inside Indonesia to raise awareness about climate change, particularly as you get away from, from, from Jakarta itself. But I do think that awareness has grown since I was there. Um, you know, already when I was ambassador, we were doing a lot of efforts to 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 raise awareness about climate change and raise awareness about the impact on Indonesia of, you know, increasing severity of of uh, of storms, uh, the increased flooding. I, I, obviously, everybody already knows that one quarter of Jakarta is underwater every year, and that's one of the reasons that they've decided Jokowi's decided to to move the capital to to Kalimantan. So I think uh, you know, as as the as the as the rains and as the floods and as these natural disasters have occurred with growing frequency and growing severity in Indonesia, as they have in our own country, uh, awareness has grown that, that that the reason for this is because of climate change. But again, it's uh, people. I, a lot more work still needs to be done because they're they're not necessarily connecting all the dots. Uh, of of why this is happening and what are the changes that need to take place in Indonesia to so that it's going to play a, a, its own very important role in this global uh, priority. I don't know, Kevin, you agree? Uh, yeah, very much so. Um, I, I think there's regional heads who are very open and enthusiastic about uh, an energy transition. So that's promising. But I think a lot of the public still expects to have fixed prices for electricity and uh, petrol. Uh, but on the other hand, you've got a president right now with the power and, and the uh, political capital to raise those prices a little bit, you know, within reason uh, and, and make a move in that direction. Uh, yeah. But, uh, I mean, one of the things we haven't talked about, guys, and maybe we should just mention it because it is important, is, is the whole forest and land use side of this equation. Sure. Which is which is still the largest source of Indonesia's greenhouse gas emissions right now. But I think it's important for your viewers to know that Indonesia actually has come quite a long way, unlike its progress on it, you know, relatively halting progress on renewable energy. They've actually made quite a lot of progress in terms of stopping deforestation and um, and, you know, delinking progress on on palm oil from deforestation. Uh, and they've also made quite a lot of progress in stopping the fires. Um, I remember when I was uh, there in 2015, they were estimating that the amount of carbon that was released by the fires in both Kalimantan and Sumatra was the equivalent of Germany's national greenhouse gas emissions for that entire year. So a huge amount. And so it became a really big priority for them to uh, basically set up a, a their equivalent of a rapid reaction force to get on top of small fires quickly and to educate 
small farmers that look, you shouldn't be starting fires that are going to then turn into these huge fires that are going to burn out of control for for you know days and weeks. So so they have made quite a lot of progress on the fire control issue as well. Um, and so you know they now have this uh, this net zero target of 2030 for their forest and land use area, which is great, which is great and re really important. But also, you know, to, let's be fair, there there are are challenges. Um, you know, the, the the government still wants to uh, increase production of palm oil, and, and they're particularly interested in substituting um, biofuels from from palm oil. And so, you know, I think one of the, one of the questions is, are they going to be able to do that in a sustainable way that enables them to maintain their relatively good record of keeping deforestation rates down? Um, and yes, they are doing a lot to uh, restore. I think two million hectares of peatlands is one of their one of their goals, and then they want to rehabilitate uh, like six times that. I think it's twelve million hectares of of degraded lands by 2030. So, so there there is a there is a an effort underway to, again for replanning and restoration that's quite important. But nonetheless, they're going to have to really uh, I think watch closely the palm oil and make sure that that doesn't lead to a, a, a new accelerated uh, deforestation. Yeah. 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 Especially with the palm oil price right now, it creates a right. huge incentive for anybody to go out and uh, plant a uh, palm oil tree. Although it was interesting when I, when I met with um, the minister of, uh, of environment and forest minister, Siti Nirbaya, she produced a little chart that showed that they in fact have been able to decouple um, uh, palm, uh, palm oil production from palm oil prices, and that even though palm oil prices have continued to rise, that the uh, the palm oil production has not risen concomitantly. So that, which is good, so it shows that there has been a, a you know a positive effort on their part. Well, that takes us to about thirty minutes, Ambassador. Is there anything else you want to? I mean, there's a million things we can. Right, that's a huge, huge topic. We are deeply grateful, but um, anything you want to? Well, you know, I, I just want to say, you know, I think we 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 have to give some credit to our our friends in the Indonesian government for for willing to take this on, for willing to be ambitious uh, and to think ambitiously about um, coal decommissioning. I mean, it, it, we've seen in our own country how difficult that can be, um, and uh, so this is we're at the beginning of this effort now. There's going to be some some hard decisions that are going to have to be made. And, um, but, you know, we're cautiously optimistic that this is going to succeed and that at the end of this, we'll be able to announce an initiative that leads to accelerated coal decommissioning, but also has some important steps that Indonesia will take to allow for the acceleration of renewable energy. So, um, and if, and if that happens, that will be a, a quite a big victory, not only for Indonesia, but for, for global climate efforts. Um, so, um, so a lot of hard work ahead, but, um, there's, there's a, a good result at the end of the, uh, of the rainbow there. Super. Thank Ambassador you. Blake, thank you so much. It was great to uh, be with you today. Great. Nice let to us talk know to you guys. When you're in town. Sorry? We'll, uh, let, let us know when you're in town. We'll get uh, some booting on. Absolutely. <laughs> there's more to talk about. Thank you.
And that's the pod. Thanks so much to former Ambassador Blake for joining us. Our editing and sound engineering is done by Steve Mahendo. Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions. For a free trial of Kevin's Reformacy weekly newsletter, go to reformacy.info. And if you're listening to us through a podcast app, please subscribe and share us on social media. It would be a big help. As always, you can reach us at hello at onthelevel.id. This podcast is a production of On The Level Media. I'm Jeff Hutton. Bye for now.